Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. The right workspace is more than just square footage. It's an incubator of achievement, a magnet for talent. Your workforce unleashed. For 160 years, Savills has been bringing real intelligence to global real estate, ensuring not just any space, but the perfect workspace. Because the most important dimension of a building is the human one. Savills. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. Hey, Dub Dynasty fans, we got a new podcast, The Jeff and Jess Show, with me, Jeff Roberts. And me, Jessica. We'll be talking about our many passions, including faith, family, and everyday life. So check out new episodes of The Jeff and Jess Show every Wednesday at podcastone.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe at iTunes. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and you're listening to Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action, and we're inviting you to join us every Wednesday in my New York City apartment. You know, I think all podcasts are great to listen to while we're cooking, and today is especially a great podcast to listen to while you're cooking, because my guest is Jody Adams. Jody is a James Beard award-winning chef who knows a lot, not just cooking, but mentoring also, because her mentor was one of the greatest chefs of all time, Julia Child. So it doesn't get much better than that. Okay, if you're going to have a mentor, a role model, a supporter in your life, if you're whether you're a cook or not, a chef or not, let it be Julia Child. Absolutely. So, and but you pay it forward. So Jody didn't wasn't that mentee and was like, oh, isn't this great? Jody now spends a lot of time mentoring other young women and men who are hopefuls in the culinary world and making leaders out of everyone who chooses to be a leader. But 20 years ago, with an anthropology degree from Brown, Jody did something that was very unusual, and not just because she had an anthropology degree from Brown, but because she was a woman. She opened a restaurant, and then she bought out her partners. And that is really, Jody. I mean, being in the restaurant world is very much a man's world, especially 20 years ago and still is now. That was gutsy, or we could just say ballsy, to do that. I want to get into that. You went on and you your restaurant, your Boston restaurants are Rialto, Trade, and your recently opened restaurant is Porto and Saloniki, a Greek fast casual concept restaurant. And we'll talk about all of those. But she isn't just a fabulous chef and mom, because I loved reading about you. I love, I, Jody sent me pictures of her when she was growing up and in the, in the world and, the, and cooking and just growing up and catching fish. But you're also, you're a great mom, you're a great chef, and you... This is your seventh year riding the PMC, which is the Pan Mass Challenge. It's a 194-mile two-day um, race that you do with your team, and you've raised over $500,000, you and your team, Correct. for charity, yes. for, for cancer research and treatment. That's huge. And you've worked with culinary teams in Haiti, and she have led culinary tours in Africa and Spain, and you love to dance. I love that. I, I mean, I just love everything that you do because I, what I think it shows is that it's really safe to say that you are a woman that can do anything. Well, thank you. Um, I like to think so. As we know, sometimes there are 
images that get in the way of thinking that way. And it's really important as, um, as an individual, but also as a mentor to help break down those barriers in terms of imagination. Right. And, and you, you just have that go getter. I can do it. Very calm thing about you. So we're going to talk about all of this and about leadership, which really goes into, I want to talk about our sponsor today for a moment. And it's just a great segue because I love this sponsor is gender Avenger. So the name Gender Avenger makes you want to go get a cape, and even more so when you find out why. Gender Avenger is making sure women's voices are heard everywhere, from the kitchen to the boardroom. Especially now, instead of feeling like we're moving forward, we're sometimes feeling like we're going back a few steps. But now with Gender Avenger, we have somebody helping us out to get our voices heard. Like, remember that time back in 2012 when a congressional panel on contraception was made up entirely of men and we were like, oh my, oh my God, it's 2012. How could this be happening? And Jody's shaking her head yes. at me. Well, here we are in 2017 and we're still asking the same question. It's like, how on God's earth is this happening? Whether it's about politics or tech or finance or culture, sadly, we aren't surprised that we're still asking that question. Women's voices are missing, and Gender Avenger is doing something about it. And we all can do something about it. Our first step is to go to genderavenger.com or download the app. So the next time you see that male or almost male panel, or maybe you're on one of those panels that I'm on often where there aren't that many women in the room, you go to Gender Avenger, go to the app, and the actions will start happening. So if you next time you're searching an opinion page or you're watching the news and you notice the absence of women's voices, go to Gender Avenger. The next time anything that doesn't seem right in that gender equality world happens, go to Gender Avenger and become a Gender Avenger. This is where we need our cape. We need to become Gender Avengers and learn what we can do to demand change wherever women's voices are missing. And now to our mentoring moments. And I'll kick it off with my mentoring moment, which is more of an aha moment. And it kind of leads us to where we're at today. When I think back to, I think we're missing a big piece in women connecting on that really deep level that we talk about being vulnerable. But when I think back to in the olden days, the quilting bees and the quilting circles, and we would sit around, women would sit around. And if you were a younger woman, you were there with your mom, your aunt, your grandmas, and you would be mentored naturally because you would hear these stories. In the kitchen, when I was growing up, and we would make bread, my mom and I, on Saturday mornings, we would make bread. And that's when she would tell me, I would be, I had the knead the dough, which, you know, I used to call it punching the dough. I know there's a difference, but it was like, I got to punch the dough. And my mom would tell me stories about growing up on a farm and how she would make bread with her mom and her grandmother and how the gypsies tried to kidnap her and can't make this stuff up and how she wanted to be a singer and never did. And so it was those natural moments of being mentored and that connection, something special happens when you're in the kitchen. Um, that, that there's like, because you're dealing with, you're going back to your roots and you're going and you're, do, you're working with food that comes from roots. It's, there's something about it, I think, that's very primal that makes us get more vulnerable as we're telling stories and we want to help each other. We're connecting, we're working together, we're communicating differently. So that's my mentoring moment, which is more of an aha moment today um, in that I want us all to start connecting on that level where we, and I'm starting to do more of it 
inviting people to my home to be able to cook together. It's not just come for dinner, but it's let's cook together and let's create together. And let's get to that point where we are chatting and talking and cooking and chopping and chewing and doing all of those things that just bring us to a different level of being vulnerable and helping each other versus that plan. Let's go have lunch and let's mm-hmm. you know, chat. A whole different conversation arises. So that's my call out to everyone who's listening is just go do something that brings you into that world, whether it's cooking, quilting, whatever it is. I think there's something that you hit the nail on the head absolutely about when it comes to food and cooking, and that is common ground. James Beard talked about food being common ground. In my experience in traveling, as well as what I know from the experience like the one that you just described of being in my mother's kitchen and given free reign to do whatever I wanted as long as I cleaned up afterwards. Um, what I found in cooking in, in kitchens around the world is I don't need to speak the verbal language. We connect through the process of cooking and we can communicate that way. And then when you bring people around the table, there is a vulnerability that happens because you've touched something emotional and people's guards are down and then they connect with each other on a level that is um, much less charged and it's based on common ground as opposed to conflict or differences. You start at a place where we're all the same. I think it's, I've always said um, that the most important things in the world, um, except maybe sex, happen around a table. Well, you can have some, but we won't go there. That's a different podcast. <laughs> it can happen. Right, 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 right. That's a different podcast that we'll go to. But it really does, right? I'm not, that, some of my best memories of my childhood are those times of being at my great-grandma's. And we had a big, we had a small family for being Italian, but a fairly large family, all things considered. And the aunts and uncles and everybody talking over each other. And just the stories that were being told and as being young, we would just sit there and listen. We didn't participate as much as we might now, Um, but it was quite entertaining, but you learn so much from that. Like I learned, like my one uncle went to shoot his brother. I learned not to do that. That's never a good idea to pull out a gun on your brother. Don't do that. (laughs) So that's a little secret in my family, Uh but, um, but, but on, on a serious note, the, the really loving moments of seeing how my great-grandmother had diabetes and how her daughters would all rally around to help her. And she died when she was 104, so wow. she had a long life. She had a long life. But those are the things that stick with you as who you are as a person. When you're seeing people and you're having those conversations, as, mm-hmm. as you said, when they're, they're deeper. And when you have um, difficult conversations about difficult times in your life, uh, if you're in a place that's safe, that feels comfortable, and that uh, you're surrounded by people who care about you and protect you, then um, you can talk about the things that are hard. I was thinking of an aha moment for myself, which is actually my world is food. It's always been food. It's been kitchens and restaurants and and cooks and chefs and servers and customers. But this was happened to me before I um, started working in restaurants. I had married somebody and I thought it was going to be for the rest of my life and I learned fairly quickly in the marriage within a year that it was I'd married the wrong person and I ultimately found out that I had met the right person Um, in my world there was no divorce a promise made was a debt unpaid so I had this struggle of what do I do about this terrible conflict and terrible mistake that I think I had made that I was going to do such damage to this 
person, this my first husband. So I carry was carrying, you know, anxiety, riddled with anxiety, tortured by guilt, and um, and I was panicked in terms of fear about what step to take. I just didn't didn't know what to do. I was 24 years old. I was young. I could not go to my mother. She was not somebody who would I could talk to at that point. I got some guidance from my sisters, but I really needed some outside help because I was in a crisis. And a friend of mine sent me to see someone who was a, um, a therapist, a psychiatric social worker, and she worked with all kinds of people. But she was a crisis therapist. She was not somebody that I would be going to see you know, for, on an ongoing basis. This was just like quick fix. And I went in, and it was a chaotic hospital. It was in the middle of a hospital, and there was lots of people milling around, and I was feeling my you know, terrified horrible self. And she came slumping along. She was in she, a, um, a white lab coat, coffee stains on it. She was walking on the back of her shoes. She was the most unprofessional looking professional that um, I, I thought, you know, I'd get this very formal looking, doctory looking person. And she said, come on in. We went in. So she sat down. She said, oh, I got to lose weight. I can't even fit into my shoes, which of course put me That's slightly <laughs> And I started telling my story, who I, and I hadn't told it that way. I hadn't allowed myself to tell anybody the story the, the way I did with her, which was very open and honest and um, very raw. And she said, so what do you think you're going to do? And I said, I don't know. I, you know. I can't. These are two realities I have to hold because I can't imagine leaving my first husband, but I can't imagine living with him either for the rest of my life. And she t- took a deep breath, and she looked me in the eye, and she said, you know, you're going to have to be the bad guy. And that had never occurred to me in my life that I would have to make a decision that was one that would hurt other people, where I would be perceived as a bad person. I mean, I was a girl who was raised to do everything right. I wanted straight A's and gold stars and perfection and everybody to like me and to be successful and never make a mistake. So that was just completely at odds with my uh, self-image. And the reason I tell the story is that what it did was, was for the first time somebody gave me permission to make decisions for myself. And um, I had to learn how to do that. And I had to learn how to do that and forgive myself for making decisions that weren't necessarily what other people wanted me to do. and I, it's something that I've worked on all my life, and I think lots of women do. Um, it's a really important lesson to learn early. There are so many huge lessons in your mentoring moment that one is, and I want to get back to you in a second, but I want to share this. When I was married, my first marriage, and after about 10 years, it wasn't working, and but I couldn't get divorced. The same, you know, I grew up Catholic. It was like, you don't do this. In my mind, it was, I could not give myself permission. So I was in therapy for seven years. I think I needed your yes. Pisces therapist. But she really, we tried. We really, really tried to make the marriage work. And then it would work, and then I adopted my daughter, you know, thinking that that will make things better. And she did make my life better, but... Um, but the marriage wasn't getting better or worse because of her. The marriage was in trouble from mm-hmm. the very beginning. But you keep pulling at these things, right? I'll get a new house. So I bought a 7,000-square-foot house. You know, I'll, I'll do all these things, and my life will get better. And one day, I just quit. It was like she, my therapist said to me, you know, 
we, you have tried everything and now I'm going to give you the permission because you need the permission in your own head. And that still didn't work for me. What happened was I was talking to my brother one day and I was crying saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so, I was passing out, literally passing out and falling on my face. I was going to work with sunglasses on because I had black, I had black eyes from falling. And my, I was telling this to my brother and he was like, okay, you have got to stop now. And he, he really liked my husband. So it wasn't that he, the people were ganging up on him. Right. And he said, you think that someone has to hit you over the head with a baseball bat or throw you down a pair of stairs before you can say, I can't do this any longer. And he'll never do that. He's not that type of person. He's not a violent person. Mm -hmm. He's not going to do that, but it's okay that if you to say I'm unhappy and I've tried, I've tried my hardest and I can't do this anymore. And that is really re for years. I had, I still struggled with, did I make the right decision? Did I make the right decision? Yes, because we make a promise and it's a promise based on a tradition that for, I think for you and me was one that in our families, you, you didn't mess with that. I mean, that was the foundation of family. So, and I, Called, remember calling my mother and her response was actually, it was this, it, it was what I thought it would be. It was, how could you do this to me? And, you know, she, she was in enormous pain as well, but that was, you know, I had to then deal with all of the people who right. I would, it wasn't just this man I was married to. Um, but it was all of the other people in my life who were counting on this marriage. And I mean, really interesting it, responses from people who were divorced and they would they got so upset with me because I represented and that marriage represented a foundation that they were it was a touchstone for them that maybe their didn't marriage marriage didn't work out but Jody's did and so they were you know pissed off at me when right <laughs> so you know and th that's just one piece of what we deal with in life where we say I'm going to make this decision because this is the best decision for me. Um, and it may not be what other people want me to do, whether it's a spouse, a parent, a sister, a coworker, a partner, a child. How so, do you see that? Well, so I think it's so important to surround yourself with people who believe in you and support those decisions. Yes. And don't internalize your decision, right? That's, I think exactly. a lot of people internalize your decision. They're like, how could you do this to me? It's like, well, I'm not doing it to you. Like you're outside, not the person that you're dealing with, not your husband, but your family. It's like, how could you do this to me? But it's like, I'm not doing it to you. Why isn't anybody looking at me and saying, are you okay? Yeah. That always that always puzzles me. It's like, why are we internalizing things? But when you look at, so you got the advice from your therapist, but then how hard was it to actually make it happen? Like, were there, were there things you could say, you know, to get your, what you did to make it happen? I, yes. I, because so much of making it happen had to do with the internal struggle. So I did two very important things that year. One was that um, I represented myself in my divorce. We had very little property to share. We didn't have children. It was a very new marriage. So I, with the recommendation of somebody, a lawyer, I took it on myself. So I went to court by myself. I did collected all the papers. I did the work of making my divorce happen. 
in the courtroom. I was called up by the judge, and, and he called me by my husband's name. And I said, um, that's not my name. I never took my husband's name. And he said, in my court, you have the name of your husband, which was like, wow. So patronizing. Um, you, need, you need to call Gender Avenger. Yeah, I should have. They've been there Gender Avenger, right. So, and I, and there was some, a lawyer tapped me on the shoulder, somebody behind me who I'd never seen before, a man. He said, I'll talk to you about this afterwards. So people gathered and helped me get through that. And I, I just, I don't even remember how I did, but I managed to make my way through that. The other thing I did was I took a year off by myself and lived by myself in a beautiful house in Westport, Mass. Um, there was no heat. So I had to heat the house by splitting wood. I, it was something that I made myself go through and it was a lot of hard work, but it really, because I was doing something so physical right. that it helped me mentally and emotionally put things in order that I, that I gave myself permission to move on once I had finished that year. So it was sort of a year, I guess it was, you could say it was a year of penance was the word I was looking for. It was really, a, it was a year of paying attention, mindfulness in order to bring myself to where I forgave myself. That was, I knew that I had to forgive myself, that I wouldn't be able to move forward unless I could do that. And that's, uh, when I talk to young people, I talk about that. That's like primary skill you, you need to learn. And why do you think that's, I, I, I agree with you, but why do you think that's a primary skill? How has that played out through business? Because we're going to make mistakes right, left, and sideways. We say things that we're sorry about. We do things we're sorry about. We stay up too late. We... Uh, cook a meal poorly. Um, we yell at somebody at a time that, you know, maybe we shouldn't have or have a short fuse or, um, or cut somebody off on the road. I mean, we do all, all day. We're doing things right, right that are mistakes or potentially are, are not nice to other people. Um, and we're going to do that. And we need to forgive ourselves for those mistakes and learn from them. And then move forward, take those as lessons and move forward, as opposed to ignoring them and pretending that they don't happen or not taking responsibility for them at all, which some people do. It's like, it's not my fault. It's right. somebody else's right. fault. Point which fingers. Is, right. Which is not a good idea. No. Or, um, just, Oh, you know, like squeeze it back down inside of yourself and hope it doesn't re emerge. Which that, is not, a, not also not no, a good no, idea. No, because it's, right. it's just going to take you down eventually. So, and when you're in the kitchen, when I'm in the kitchen, well, you talked about podcasts, which I do definitely listen to podcasts when I'm in the kitchen, but I also dance. You dance in the kitchen? Oh, wow. I'm, I'm lucky I can chop dance. just like standing still. So well, I don't dance. dance when I'm chopping, but you know, moving right? from one thing to the next, I like to get the music cranking and dance. And I, my kids both dance because, um, and my daughter is a I mean, she danced all through elementary school and high school, and she's studying one. Um, she has a minor in dance at the new school. But my son also is a really good dancer, and it's because we I dance. My husband is a terrible dancer. He, so he, do you got, you don't go out dancing? No, you know, and it's because he's. I think he's too self conscious. If he just let himself go, that's the thing about dancing. Right. Everybody can be a good dancer. He's you just let go of control. Let go of control. Close your eyes and let go of control, and don't think anybody's looking at you because they're not. So they're too worried about, about themselves. themselves. So I, I agree. It's, we always think people are watching us and people are never watching us. So how does that work though? You're, you're married to someone who doesn't like to dance. You love to dance. 
Well, here's something that happened. We did, I learned how to tango. Somebody told me that a wonderful woman, Joan Parker, who was a great guest of the restaurant, supporter of the restaurant, Rialto, and also wonderful philanthropist with a focus on um, music and theater. Um, both her, One of her sons was a is an actor and the other one's a dancer. And so she was a huge supporter of dance. And there, at the turn of the century in 1999, we did a fundraiser for a dance organization in Boston. And we were sitting, my partner at the time, and Joan and I were sitting around a table. There were going to be five courses and five dances. And they got to the last course, which was dessert. And they said, tango. Now we need somebody to dance tango. And they both their eyes went to me and they said, Jody, you like to dance. Why don't you do tango? And I said, oh, okay. I had never tangoed. I didn't know what tango was. I didn't know there was a difference between American tango and true Argentine tango and so I said, okay. And they set me up with a teacher and he was this very serious guy. He was, um, who taught me how to dance. And I practiced from the beginning of October to New Year's Eve. I danced the tango and then I just started shaking. Just the adrenaline left me. Um, and I realized that I'd been excruciatingly nervous. So Rather than let that be the end of my tango career, we started a tango night at Rialto every Friday night. And so I danced and I loved it. And if you've ever danced tango and people who dance tango, even if they're not professionals, know that you become addicted. It's a dance that you really become addicted to and you want to go out and get better and better. And the problem was that I was going out after work, starting at 10 o'clock, dancing until one in the morning. I still had young children. My husband wasn't with me. I was dancing with some strange characters. So after about a year and a half, I thought, you know, I, this isn't making me a better mother. I mean, I love doing this, but this is not making me a better mother or a better wife. Or I got to find how to do this without actually dancing tango. That's a sacrifice I made consciously since my husband wasn't going to dance with me. That's very, but, because I think sometimes when you have one interest and your, your partner doesn't, it's hard because one of you someone's feeling guilty in, in the process sometimes. The one who's not doing it sometimes feels guilty. The one who's doing it feels guilty. Absolutely. Yeah. He's promised me that, that he'll learn when we retire, he will learn. Uh Oh, you're never retiring though. Are you? You, <laughs> just, opened, you just have two new restaurants. I, I want to talk about this. So how did you go from majoring in anthropology mm -hmm. to being a chef? Well, I grew up in family like you where the kitchen was central. Cooking was central. We sat down for dinner every night for dinner. Um, and my, my mother cooked from scratch. It was very simple. My ethnic background is English, Scottish, German. So not the culinary meccas that we think of. Um, but it was a family that cooked from scratch and my mother made bread and, um, you know, many, many years ago. And, um, we learned how to cook and we didn't have a television and books were important. And my father was an academic. So we, he had sabbaticals and we lived in Europe and traveled. And so by the time I had graduated from high school, I'd been in kitchens from in Guatemala and Morocco and France, you know, in, in Holland, all, all around. And I knew I loved to cook. I had worked for a woman who taught cooking classes. I worked for a catering company. I worked for gourmet food store, all of these, um, the focus on cooking and food. And this was in the seventies, you know, um, when I was doing this 
the culinary America that we know was just emerging. Dean and DeLuca had just opened. Um, Chez Panisse had been open for a number of years, but the restaurants in Boston were just opening. Places like Les Balliers, which is still going strong. Um, and I had never occurred to me that I wanted to work in a restaurant or that I could even do that. I come from an academic family. But there was that crisis in my life or that turning point in my life where I realized that my marriage wasn't at 24. I was in the wrong marriage. And I really needed to do what was important to me and what felt right and what got me going. And being in a kitchen was it. So I went to Boston, got a job. And along the way, I had met Julia Child. That's very say so. And then how did you meet yeah. Julia Child? <laughs> I was doing, I had uh, volunteered to wash dishes at a fundraiser that she was doing for Planned Parenthood in Rhode Island. And I was in my 20s, early 20s. And I met her then. And then the woman that I, who had been my cooking teacher worked for her and reintroduced me to Julia when I was in um, like 24. And when I was thinking about moving to Boston, I sat down with her and she said, you must go work for Lydia Shire. And that's what I did because you did what Julia told you to. And it was really the best thing that I could have done. I was given an opportunity. I had, as I said, no restaurant experience, but I, I could cook, and I was a really hard worker, and nothing was going to stop me. So I want to. I have one. I have a few questions here. One is, you meet Julia Child. Where does the guts come once we get back to the guts and the balls? To then, how do you reconnect with Julia Child? Well, she was in this woman I knew was working for her, so I asked Nancy if. Julia would meet with me because I knew that she lived in Cambridge and she knew all these chefs. And I want to so applaud she, you right now, but it could like cause a lot of havoc with the microphone because that's huge. That is huge. You were early, you were even in your twenties. You were like 20 something. Yeah, I was 24. And to be able to not be afraid to say, I want to meet, I want to meet with her. It wasn't that I wasn't afraid. But, but you still took action. But I took action. And, I, you know, I, this image just came back to me. Once I met her and she gave me – she told me to work for Lydia, but I also had to apply in other restaurants. And I had a list of phone numbers. This is in the olden days when you actually picked up a receiver and dialed a number. Yes, and I, I sat at the kitchen table in that house where I had been chopping wood. And it took me three days to make the first phone call. To but get you made over it. the fear, but I made it. Yeah, that is that is the huge barrier of getting out of that fear. But I think people look at when you you describe me as being so calm. I don't think of myself as calm. You know, I the, what's going on inside of me is like oh, really because like your whole million. being is. I know, um, but I don't know where that. Somebody else. I got a. Um, a an email from a friend of mine who I haven't seen. I went to high school with her. I haven't seen her in 20 years. And she wrote me and she said, I remember when I first met you, Jody. we were 10. You were so serene. And I thought, me? Serene? I don't think of myself as serene. But anyway, I, that's a nice, uh, I'm glad that I present. Um, and I think it brings perhaps calm to people. But are you crazy in the kitchen? Not, not like in your home kitchen, but in the restaurant kitchen. I can be. You can you? It's like I want stories from those people. Like, oh yeah, when I was when I was a line cook, I certainly was. I mean, I was yeah. Right. In fact, I remember I told this story when I worked for Gordon Hammersley. I was behind the line, and it was him and me. And this was in um, 
the mid eighties and I had on a baseball cap and he had on a baseball cap and somebody across the room had asked the server. We used to call them waiters. Um, I remember those days. Yeah. I was one of them. I was a waitress. Is Gordon here tonight? And the server said, yes, he's up there. And the guest said, which one is he? And I thought, yes, I've arrived because um, they can't tell me from Gordon, who's the man. Oh. Because that meant I was tough and hardworking and I've learned to come full circle Circle, on that. But, but it's, but as we're going through those pieces, and that's something I tell young women a lot where you and I, I'm a few years older than you, but we're in the same, you're, you're a decade, you're in a different decade, but we're, we've been around and you see things differently. And the things that are important to you when you're 20, when you're 60, looking back, you're going to be really, but you need to go through all of those things because Mm -hmm. if you hadn't gone through those things, you wouldn't be the person you are today. Correct. And not that we don't want the world to change and not that we don't want women to have voices and we want, you know, we want to have our rights, all of that. But you need to go through those phases in life. Had you not gone through the peace with your marriage, you wouldn't be the person you are today. And that's sad that you had to go through that. It's sad that we all have to go through losses, whether it's death or a partner. Um, but it's just part of going through our lives. So when we look at, when I look at things, I have a totally different lens because I've done it. Yes. But what you're doing with this lens um, through this microphone and this program, which is so important, is showing people, men and women, young and old. But I think particularly for young people, it's really important um, to show this vulnerability that we have, the mistakes that we had, the struggles that we had in this mentoring moment show right. that you have is uh, is doing such a wonderful thing. Because I didn't have women who would sit down with me and say, oh, yeah, I mean, I went through the hardest time. This is what, you know, happened to me. People, and my mother, for an an example, you know, if you had difficulties, if things were a struggle, if you were pissed off at your husband, if you were unhappy with your children, you didn't talk to people about that. Correct. You kept that to yourself. My mother would talk to her mom, but not to friends about it. No, you didn't talk to people. So there were... In my world, there weren't these shared stories that help each of us see that, oh, yeah, that everybody has a hard time. Everybody struggles. Everybody cries. Everybody's unhappy. Everybody's scared. Yes. And we will get through it. And I think by joining together, that's when we're really going to get through it Mm -hmm. because we are being vulnerable and saying that none of us, life is just not perfect. And we're going to do our, I'm done with that. But first, I want to talk again about our wonderful sponsor, Gender Avenger. So here's a reminder to everyone to visit Gender Avenger and find out how you can take action to have women's voices heard. I'm talking about gender imbalances. Like the next time you're scratching your head, wondering how women's voices are not part of the dialogue, asking how on God's earth can this be happening in 2017? Like how can a congressional panel on contraception be made up entirely of men? Visit Gender Avenger to do something about it. And the next time you notice an all or almost all male panel or read about an upcoming conference and there are no women or very few women on the stage, Visit Gender Avenger. 
And the next time you're reading the paper, you're watching the news and you see the experts and they're all men. And I know I sit there and just say, you couldn't find a woman expert to be on this panel to say, because they're out there. Trust me, they are out there. Well, the next time you see that, visit Gender Avenger. Whether it's about politics or tech or finance or culture, become a gender avenger and learn what you can do to demand change wherever women's voices are missing. Hey guys, David Smalley here, reminding you to check out Dogma Debate on the Podcast One app, iTunes, and basically everywhere else you could possibly hear a podcast. Dogma Debate is basically a way for you to peek in on conversations you've always wondered about. Say a hardcore anti-gay preacher meets an atheist who knows the Bible like the back of his hand, or a far-left social justice warrior meets a different kind of liberal who doesn't want to join in on the riots. On Dogma Debate, I talk to people who completely disagree with me, and I let them tell me why they think I'm wrong, why I should be on their team, and why they take such an extreme stance. And sometimes you'll just hear me hanging out with like-minded people and laughing during segments like Republicans Say the Darndest Things or Fact Check Yo Mama. It all happens on Dogma Debate, right here on Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there were over one million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fine hunting for your brilliant brunch, Riesling. And sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Now back to Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari. And so, Jody, now we're going to do I'm Done With That. Am I I'm Done With That? I'll start so you'll give you time to think. My I'm, I'm Done With That is really easy because, and I think I said it to you the other day, I'm done with only having six recipes that I keep making over and over again because I'm so bored with my food. So I need, I'm done with that. I don't know why I keep doing it. You may be able to help me. So I'm really I'm done with that looking for advice. Like, I'm done with this. Now what do I do? Oh, advice, for sure, you, you build on it. You have so many more recipes than you think you do. You, have, you're, you are an expert in those six recipes, and you just have to grow them. Change the herbs. Change the, you know, if you're working with fish, change it to chicken. Make a few adjustments. Okay, I'm so, sure that- so my control and perfectionism, although I have said I am a recovering perfectionist, and I am recovering is the operative, mm-hmm. is the real key word there. So if the recipe says to do this, this, and this, I have to do exactly what the recipe says. So, But how long have you been cooking? Oh, 40 years. <laughs> it's like, that, not with the same six recipes let all go, 40 years. Let go, <laughs> let go, Denise. Have fun, make a mess. Make, make, a, a, make a mistake. Get messy. Yeah, get messy and make a mistake. Throw it out. Right. If it doesn't work. Yeah. I used to say, this is very specific. If you want to learn how to make a pie dough, make a dough every day for a week, throw them away if they don't work. But that's the only way you're going to learn. Practice, practice, practice. So is that, once again, going back to giving yourself permission to say it's okay if it doesn't work? Exactly. Forgive yourself. I remember the first, um, my husband, when I made his, when we were dating, our first dinner at my place. So... I made this pasta dish that was really spicy. And my brother says, my brother has a big play in my life. As you can see, my brother says to me the next day when I call him and I like, you know, I really like Lewis and blah, blah, we had a great time. And my brother's like, well, how was the dinner? And I said, oh, it was a little spicy. And he said, well, how was it when you made it to test it? I said, test it? 
I, I don't have time to test the recipe, so when I want to understand this. There's a guy you're dating who you really like, you invite him over for dinner, and you make something entirely new. It never even dawned on me to like practice the recipe. Yeah. So that somehow that's gotten lost in the past 15 years. So I have to I have to get the back practicing. to that. Yeah, poor Lewis. He's in front. He's like yeah. well, he's I listening th- to this saying, no, no. I think it's important to remember that we get to mastery through practice. You can't shortcut that. So I would say I'm done with doing that to not the six recipes, but I'm done with trying to wing it. Oh, so talk about that. Because, and that's not to say to remove spontaneity, innovation from my life. Um, but in the important times to, to not wing it, which is to mean, and what it actually means is putting gaps in your life, moments to um, reflect, moments to prepare, uh, moments to meditate, moments to breathe, as we talked about before, you know, have a little ritual that you do before something, you know, before you're going to speak or, or go for a run or before you're competing or whatever it is. Um, I have spent my life racing. That's why when you say I seem calm, because I, I feel like I'm re- always racing from one thing to the next and not doing in the culinary world and restaurant world we call mise en place and mise en place is putting things in order so that um, you're prepared and then when you start performing whatever it is like cooking in your kitchen you have everything in front of you and a mise en place could mean testing something testing a recipe before it could mean um, doing a draft before you have to speak just putting those gaps in your life to give yourself the buffer to be prepared to be your best self. And now I'm getting a little heavy. But anyway. No, but I think so, that's, it's real. But what's, so what stops you from doing that? Because I know what stops me from doing it. I forget. Right. It's like I've never been on a diet. I think about going on the diet the night before I wake up in the morning, I've forgotten. Because of the way my brain works, it's always moving forward. I have to stop myself. Like I have this wonderful ritual. I get up in the morning. I do... 40 minutes of stretching and yoga and then I meditate for 15 minutes and then I have breakfast but sometimes I forget or sometimes I wake up and I think I want to think about what I'm going to talk to Denise about you know a week from now so I want to think about that and I can't so I eliminate that ritual and I pay, it's not that I pay for it but I miss it right later in the day I can feel that I've missed that later in the day so those are the things and then when I don't do it to not beat myself up for not doing it forgiving myself and just trying to remember so and I'm in a you know I'm in a very different place than I was so I have now four restaurants Rialto actually has closed I had it for 22 years. I closed it last summer. That was a very bittersweet experience. But I have these four young restaurants. Three of them I opened this year with my partners. I have young partners who are really energized and excited and ambitious. And I've kind of switched roles where I'm trying not to feel like I have to lead everything, that I can actually put a gap between me and that and allow myself to follow these partners that I have and um, see where that takes me. So is it giving up control? There's a certain amount of control. That has to be hard as a chef. Well, it is, um, but you cannot control everything. If you try and keep your hand on everything, it's... Nothing gets done. Nothing gets done. And 
so in trade and at Porto, the two are two full service restaurants. I have chefs there who I've worked with for many years and I trust. We work together. We, they generate ideas about the menu. I consult with them. We talk about them. We, they test them. We try them. Um, I'm work as a consultant to them to a certain extent. I'm not, I don't feel like I have to, you know, have a, an iron hand on that menu because if I tried to put an iron hand on a menu in both restaurants, when I walked away, what would happen? It would either fall like lead and crush everybody or they'd push it away anyway. It has to... The ownership of a menu, in my mind, has to come from the person who's actually executing it and in the kitchen day in and day out. Otherwise, they're just trying to create something from my head. And if they don't believe in something, for instance, I was talking to Andrew at Porto. We had a menu meeting. We were talking about a new dessert. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice to have like a coffee dessert for the spring? And I was going on and on. And he was nodding. And then he said, you know, I don't really like coffee desserts. And I said, well, let's not do a coffee dessert then, you know. All the desserts in the world, (laughs) that one we don't have to do. Exactly. That is such great, such great, great advice. Sometimes for me, I think that and I've gotten better at this, I have to own the idea, not out of ego. It's just, and it's not because I think I have the best idea. It's like, I need to do my part. It's, so it's the opposite way of being the control freak because I think nobody else has a better better idea than me or anything. It's more of the, I need to do my part in this team. So I need to come up with every idea, which is not part of teamwork, right? No, that's being a perfectionist. Right. There you go. There you go. So now I'm going to make more food. I'm going to screw it up. Poor Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> Life is going to change. Yeah. So one more thing, major shift for me is that I had, when I started fine dining restaurants, that was the kind of restaurant that I wanted to be in. It was the be all end all. White tablecloth, special occasion. And that's what Rialto was. Trade and Porto are, are less formal. No tablecloths, a little more casual, a little um, more ease, more fun. Saloniki, which is a complete departure for me, is a quick serve Greek sandwich shop. If you had asked me three years ago, would I ever be writing menus and a partner in a business like that? I would say, you're crazy. That's not what I do. That's not fine dining. When Eric and John, my partners, came to me and asked me if I would do it, I had to take a deep breath and think about why would I not? Why would I do it? That's important too. But why would I not do it? I had to ask myself, what's stopping me from doing this? Because this could be really fun and liberating. I'm so tied to this idea that my identity is, you know, under the toque in a fine dining restaurant to let it go and say, let's do something completely outside of the box of anything I've ever done. Delicious food, well executed, but simple, 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 and reach as many people as we possibly can. And that's what Saloniki is, and I'm having so much fun with it. I'm learning so much about myself, and it has helped me to develop a new, you know, part of my identity, which I really love. You know, people look at me in a different kind of way, think of me as a different kind of chef. I'm really digging that. And does it energize you some? Absolutely. I I walk into those restaurants and there's young people who are working hard and they're making these things happen. The general manager of um, Fenway, which was our first one, came straight out of BU. He, He helped us open that restaurant. He was just a line person making sandwiches. He's now gone through the opening of the second and back 
at the Fenway One. Within a year, he's the general manager and smart as anything, and he's going to help develop the business. And so we're working in a very dynamic space with young people who want to grow professionally and they can see a path. And I think asking yourself, not always why, but why not, is a really good question. We've talked about that on Mm -hmm. the podcast, that it's that why not that gives you the power to say, well, I don't know why not. I mean, I can't come up with a good answer because I'm stuck in my old model is what usually is the answer. Or my ego's in the way. Or my mother, whatever it is, right? The outside forces that are pounding on us. Okay, so Jody, now we're going to do takeaways. And I've crowdsourced questions from our listeners that questions they want to ask you. So one of the questions is about Julia Child. What was the biggest gift that she gave you? Wow, what a great question. What is the the biggest gift that she gave me was a vision of what was possible. So Julia showed me and I believe many other chefs, but particularly women that she started her professional career in her late 40s, early 50s, so that you can start at any time. She was a woman who had not grown up in restaurants, but intentionally educated herself in France. So it meant that you could do anything and you could do it if you were a man or a woman. She was in charge of her own business. I mean, there was the Julia Child business of her you know, life. Uh, she worked well into her 80s and she had grace and respect for everybody that she came in contact with. So she, when she came into my restaurants, it was like... You know, you could hear the inhale of people and people would follow her or go to her table. She was unbelievably gracious. She was always open and welcoming to those conversations. And at the end of her life, and she was in and out of my life. She once told me um, that she had a steak at my restaurant. She told me I had to change the quality of the beef I was serving. (laughs) Okay, talk about how did you feel about that? She left me a note. She used to write notes. She left me a note. I called her. I talked to her. And I did what she told me to do. You, I mean, you don't, You always did what Julia told you to do. So I changed it. Did you it. feel like injured inside? I would have been like going home crying like, oh, no, Julia hates my beef. I, there is always that. It's like a knife through the heart. But you're not going to learn anything or exactly. move forward if you allow that. And you have to... I mean, particularly in restaurants, I mean, that could be every night. You know, I would could be under the, the table every night if I allowed those critiques to, to floor me. And she was doing it out of love and, and uh, care. You know, it's not that wasn't a Yelp review. That was a Dear Jody. Yes. You need to change the quality of your beef. Not, I had this terrible experience. How dare they right. serve me that? They obviously don't care about me. It's a terrible restaurant. They're terrible people. I'll never go back and never shoot anybody else. <laughs> Sign Joe. <laughs> Sign Joe, zero. Right. Jody knows that review. Like, yeah. So whoever I, wrote that review, she's after you. Well, no, I mean, I, here, I'm just a tiny bit about, I'm going to say this about Yelp. I think people think they have power. And I'm using Yelp. It could be any yes. online anonymous reviewing. I think people think they have power when they go on and say something negative or positive. But particularly, we focus on the negative, of course, more than the positive, because it's like a knife through the heart. But if somebody posts a negative review about my restaurant, the the experience they had there, and there isn't any way for me to engage in a conversation with them, 
there is no purpose that's uh, a bigger purpose is not served. Exactly. A bigger purpose served would be if they had that terrible experience. Because I believe they had a terrible experience. I'm not doubting the experience. But if they don't bring it to us and say, this is how it played out, then we can't fix it or let them know the value of their feedback. That's really what's the missing piece there is. That feedback is so valuable to us and we will act on it. And they will never know that. They'll just think that we don't care. Exactly. When we do. So one more story about Julia. And this is that you never, ever, ever overlook an individual who is in front of you. I took my daughter. I had to drop something off for Julia. She was moving to Santa Barbara. She was in her late 80s. Um, It was two weeks before she was moving out of Cambridge. And somebody, a friend of mine had said, I know you're going to drive by her house. Can you drop this off for me? So I took Roxanne, who at the time was, she must have been about six or seven. And I knocked on the door and I had to get her out of the car because I didn't leave her in the car. So I took her up to the door. I was just going to hand this bag to somebody that said, no, 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 Julia's here. She'd love to see you. Come on in. So we went in. We went up this long stairway. We got to the top of the stairs. Julia was sitting there behind her desk. And um, Stephanie was there, who was her assistant. And Julia took one look at me and turned her head and took to, turned to Roxanne and started talking to her and talking. And they were talking and talking and talking. And I was talking to Stephanie and kept looking over, thinking, I can get her out of here. Julia's probably getting annoyed. So, you know, I tried to drag Roxanne. At one point, Julia said, no, 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 no. You know, go off and talk to Stephanie. I came back. Finally, I said, Julia, you know, we have to leave. She said, oh, you know, I'm... I'm sorry that you have to leave. And so we were, I take Roxanne's hand and we walk down the stairs and I hear, I love you. Aww. And that was not for me. That was for my daughter. And she had, I know that Julia had never had children. And I know that um, there was a part of her because she told me, I'm not making any assumptions here because she told me that that was something that she missed in her life. And for somebody in their late 80s to pay so much attention to this little six-year-old, she was an example of, as I said, treating anybody who's in front of you with dignity and grace and respect. That is just beautiful. That is, And it's just a beautiful story. I was thinking about I was on an airplane the other day and people aren't treating people with respect as we're getting off and on. And there was an old person on the plane and people were almost running over this woman. And it was just like, stop. I mean, just stop. Let her get off the plane Mm -hmm. that we're not treating people with respect. And that's just a beautiful story about Julia. So thank you for sharing it. And we could go on forever, but we have to say goodbye to the podcast. We are, we will be doing a Facebook live that everybody can see whether you're watching it live or not. It will be on Facebook book at women at Forbes. It'll live there. So you can see Jody and I, we're going to whip up. We're, what are we whipping up? We're whipping up spaghetti. Well, we're making a, yeah, a penne actually with a la Norma, which means with eggplant and tomatoes and a little spicy and some ricotta salada and basil. So you can all watch us. Now, 
Jody didn't know this, but of all the recipes, all the pasta recipes in the world, my favorite recipe is penne alla norma. Really? Yes, and you didn't know that when no. you picked it to cook. So we'll be doing that. But where can everyone find you online and when they're in Boston? Where can they find well, you? Certainly at the restaurant. So Porto on Ring Road in Back Bay. Trade is on Congress Street, corner of Congress and Atlanta in the seaport in Boston. And then we have, as I said, Saloniki, one is in Cambridge and one is near Fenway. So, and then my husband and I have a blog that has been in remission for, um, you're too busy dancing. Yeah. For a little over a year, but we are going to bring it back. It's called the garum factory.net. How do you spell that? G A R U M factory.net, not, uh, dot com. And, Garam is a Mediterranean fish sauce. So uh, this is uh, just an amalgamation of all kinds of recipes. And he's a great photographer and writer. And so it's a wonderful collaboration. Um, but yes, come see me at one of the restaurants. Ask for me. Please do. Yes, um, I would love you to will, see you, you all. will be thrilled to meet Jody. And we are going to put the recipe for the penne on for so I will be post there is there will be a post that has the recipe on it so you can get Jody here on the podcast you can see her Facebook live we'll be cooking together and the recipe on Forbes yes Jody thank you oh, thank so you and thank it makes you know I just have to say it makes so much sense to be here with you and cooking because all the restaurants are Mediterranean but there you and go Italian food is really at the core of my being right so, even though I'm <laughs> and, not Italian and I am so. Italian at the core yes, so there right. you go <laughs> thank you So I've tried to do the podcast today without referring to doing any of those cooking puns, but I just can't help myself now because we're cooking today. So thank you for joining us on Mentoring Moments. And to make sure you're getting Mentoring Moments the moment it's live every Wednesday, subscribe on iTunes and rate and review. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Have you been in a situation where you're not communicating, where you really want to communicate on a different level, on a deeper level? If so... Start cooking together and give yourself permission to do what's best for you. And take that advice from Julia Child. How often do you get advice from Julia Child? Take the time to pay attention to what's important and embrace those moments that are important. And before we go, remember to go to podcastone.com to find all the great sponsors of Mentoring Moments. Because of them, we can bring you the show each week with limited ads. To learn more about them, go to Killer Deals link on podcastone.com and check out the Mentoring Moments page. Also, Mentoring Moments is a participant in the Amazon Associates program, an affiliate advertising program designed to provide a means for us to earn fees by linking to Amazon.com and affiliated sites. You can link to Amazon at podcastone.com. So please find me. I'm easy to find. I'm always on Twitter at Denise Rastari. And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, Forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. 
I'm Rob Cisternino, the aptly named Rob Has a Podcast, where we're creating fun, smart conversation around reality TV games like Survivor. And this March, Survivor Game Changers is finally here. Join me weekdays for episode recaps, player interviews, and of course, your feedback. So if you're ready for a game change in your own Survivor experience, Download Rob Has a Podcast at podcast1.com on the Podcast One app or subscribe on iTunes. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, they are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following, following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution Uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.